chapter 21 tonight. And um, when you find your place, if you're able, why don't you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we continue to explore this exciting, I would say maybe even surprising book, right? There we go. I thought so. I mean, your comments over the last six weeks have been, uh, you are surprised. You are surprised at what we are able to observe here and how dynamic and fascinating and, and, and even Christological so much of what we're studying truly is. And so, uh, yeah, let's begin there in verse one. Let's read the opening seven verses by way of introduction. Ezekiel chapter 21, verse one. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. Because I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked, therefore my sword shall be drawn from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. And all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheath it shall not be sheathed again. As for you, son of man, groan, or in the King James, sigh, with breaking heart and bitter grief, groan before their eyes. And when they say to you, why do you groan, or why do you sigh? You shall say, because of the news that is coming, every heart will melt, And all hands will be feeble, every spirit will faint, and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming, and it will be fulfilled, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Once more, let's petition the Lord in prayer, just briefly. Father, thank you for um, preserving this fascinating work your inspired words to your prophet Ezekiel while the Hebrew people are in exile. Seven decades of removal from the promised land such that uh, you might execute righteous judgment such that sin and evil would be purged from your people such that the land would have its Sabbath rests that were stolen from it, and such that as we see this refrain over and over again, that all flesh will know that you are the Lord. Well, uh, help us as we venture on a few more chapters deep into this marvelous prophetic book. Give us minds to think and soft hearts to receive and then a will to both repent and to act. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I don't want to belabor this, but I want to make a couple of opening observations on those verses, and then I want to get to um, the big points of this next section. Okay? Uh, I want to make this distinction. I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I want to get to the big points so we make sure we see the 
the big picture of this section, but I do want to note these things for our benefit. The first thing I want to note is the instruction in verse 2. Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. It's fascinating that phrase, set your face. If you are familiar with the gospel accounts, you know that there was a, a point in Jesus' ministry when he set his gaze or set his face on Jerusalem. It was a real hinge point in uh, the, the focus and the focused ministry of Jesus. What we saw in the early years was he was sort of traveling around. He was doing what many first century rabbis do, and that's the, the work of an itinerant preacher, traveling from town to town, preaching and teaching. Now, his preaching and teaching was unlike anything else, and so it was rocking the world. But then there was a point when it says he set his face toward Jerusalem. And it was his final, if you will, descent from the northern region of Galilee down, and if you follow the the biblical narrative carefully, you see he kind of makes a winding path down through, down toward Jerusalem, where Passion Week begins and the rest is history. I find a fascinating symmetry in these phrases Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem. And Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem. It's an interesting symmetry that there is probably more to it than we have time to explore tonight. But one thing that I note is consistent. Set your face toward Jerusalem, Ezekiel. He's playing the character of God whose face is set against Jerusalem, and the intent is to deal with sin. And when Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem, it's with the focused intent to do what? Go ahead. Deal with sin. Right? Now, there's probably many more layers to that symmetry and that phraseology and the the rich Hebrew language to that, Um, But for now, I just wanted us to make that observation. And I think the reason why is because if we're not careful in the Old Testament, we will turn it into a book of moral lessons, when in fact, the whole of Scripture is ultimately about Jesus. You sometimes have to work your way there to see how it's connected, but it's about Jesus. And so let us remember the symmetry of what God is doing in the discipline of his children and the dealing with sin. It's what Jesus did in finality at the cross. The second thing I wanted to note is that phrase that that is used multiple times in the opening five verses. That he will cut off from you, that is Jerusalem, both the righteous and the wicked. I wanted to point that out because it's one of the consistent things that God does not punish, he does not condemn the righteous alongside the wicked. You need to only think of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's lengthy conversation with God where he petitions for the righteous in the city. And somehow, Lot and his two daughters were considered righteous in the city. Um, that's a conundrum I still can't quite make up when you know what happens immediately afterwards. And 
when you know who the people groups are that were spawned from his two daughters. They were enemies of Israel, perpetually. So how were they, how were they considered among the righteous enough that God would send his angels to come and, and pull them out, essentially, before the destruction was to fall? All of those are questions that I can't answer well. But it is a consistent theme that God does not condemn the righteous with the wicked. This, is, this goes all the way through up to the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Sin, all human sin, is paid for with the consequential judgment of God. It will fall either on the shoulders of the individual who commits those sins at the day of judgment, or it will fall on the shoulders of Jesus and we who are in Christ are thereby shielded from that judgment of sin. But all of sin is dealt with. That's what the word judgment means, remember? The individual receives what they have earned. And that's the marvelous beauty of Christ. We receive not what we earn, but what he earned. And yet here, what's going on I will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. So it seems that the righteous and the wicked are both experiencing the consequences of the sin of the nation. And I only point this out to note the clear distinction. It isn't that the righteous are condemned with the wicked in Ezekiel's account. When you are able to observe God making a distinction in Ezekiel between the idolaters and the righteous, here's what you find. Daniel, faithful, promoted, respected, honored, and we saw a few chapters ago, he's known already among the exiles as a righteous man on par with Noah. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego would not bow the knee. They were met in the fire by Jesus himself, rescued from it, and later promoted to high office. Ezekiel, among the righteous, he is on the bank of the river, and God appears to him, speaks to him, puts his words in his mouth, and uses him as a tool for his glory and his kingdom. And Ezekiel is like, he's enjoying God's presence to the fullest right now, you know? But the wicked who were among the exiles, we saw this last week. Ezekiel was sitting in his house. Some of the elders of Israel were gathered around him. And God said, speak to the elders of Israel who have taken their idols into their hearts and condemn, right? speak against them. So God is able in his providence that even when the righteous and the wicked experience national consequence, he is able in his excellence to distinguish those who are his and the shh, shh, those who are his and those who are not. Do you see what I'm saying? So I didn't want us to let that trip us up. I thought it was worth exploring and remembering because, again, it points ultimately to Christ. Now, that said, what we note here is this. 
on the heels of last week's lesson, chapters 17 through 20, the day of Jerusalem's destruction is at hand. There was this prophecy, or this proverb, excuse me, that was spreading among the exiles. The days are long, the words will not come to pass. What was going on, Ezekiel was saying, Jerusalem is falling, but years had gone by and nothing was happening. And so they began to say, ah, this prophet, he's full of it. God said, that, that proverb will no longer be stated. Why? Because the day of destruction is upon us. We noted last week that, that there was that fascinating metaphorical prophecy about the eagles and the plumage and plucking you know, seeds out of the top of cedar trees and all of that. What was it pointing to? It was the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, leading up to the final king, Zedekiah, who had hired the Egyptians to come and fight with them against Babylon. And God said, the Egyptians aren't gonna save you. Is this all ringing a bell? Remember what we talked about. The the exiles had obviously heard that back home in Israel, King Zedekiah has hired the Egyptians. Our salvation draws near. And God's like, nah, ain't no Egyptian gonna steal my glory, right? So what was going on was the word was spreading. And we talked about this. Just the practical reality of ancient warfare means word spreads, the army is assembled, the army travels, the army encamps, the army cuts down trees and builds siege works, and then they siege the city. Then they starve out the people, then the city falls. All of that could take years from the rumor to the summation or the completion, right? And so that, this is the point. It's heating up. And by the end of tonight, if, if I stay on time, <laughs> by the end of tonight, it's D-Day. It's the Allied forces storming Normandy Beach. It's on, right? And so the point of tonight's opening portion is to say it's heating up. The time is coming. That interary period between the second invasion to the final invasion of Jerusalem, that time is dwindling. Now, we move on into verses six and seven here of that opening portion. And uh, we find this interesting new display. It's what one of my old professors called the ministry of sighing. <laughs> Which I, I, I don't know why I laugh. Like, it's not that funny, and yet it gets me every time. Like, you know, you have a minister of music, you have a minister, you know, in Sunday school. This is our minister of sighing, and he just goes... <sighs> You know, (laughs) (laughs) the ministry of sighing, groaning, and and what you see is this is the next creative display meant to get the attention of the people in exile. Okay, remember Ezekiel's been doing all kinds of creative things, all kinds of unusual things. He's not just standing up and giving lectures like this. He is he's laying on his side, he's eating with trembling, he's, he's cutting off his hair and he's throwing it up in the air, he's uh, 
cooking over cow manure. He's eating with anxiety. He's crawling through holes in the walls. He's wearing the garments and acting out the part in a play of an exile who's been forcibly removed from his home. All of these dramatic and creative modes of communication. Well, this is the next one in the list. It's the drama, if you will, of groaning. And at each point, no matter what he's doing, no matter what strange, out-of-the-norm activity Ezekiel is doing, the point is always the same. If you go back over the last 21 chapters, every time Ezekiel is commanded to do something odd, there is almost 100% of the time, along with the commentary, God says, the people will ask you, what's this all about? And then you tell them. And so we, re- we are reminded that in this ministry of groaning or sighing, that the point was to elicit questions by the people. Prophet, what are you groaning about? What are you sighing about? And that continual refrain, if you will, the chorus of the song comes up again. Jerusalem will fall. The sighing was accompanied by another display. Look at me with, uh, look at me with verse, verses 8 through 17. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy and say, thus in the King James saith the Lord, a sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished, sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Or shall we rejoice? You have despised the rod, my son, with everything of wood. So the sword is given to be polished, that it may be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people. What is against my people? The sword. It is against all the princes of Israel, which is another word for kings of Israel, They are delivered over to the sword with my people. Strike, therefore, upon your thigh. For it will not be a testing. What could it do if you despise the rod? Declares the Lord God. As for you, son of man, prophesy. Clap, it says in the King James, strike your hands together. But it's clap your hands And let the sword come down twice, yes, three times. Three times is, again, that that Hebrew mode of communication to say something is extreme. It's the greatest. Let the sword come down twice, yes, three times. The sword for those to be slain. It is the sword for the great slaughter which surrounds them. May that their hearts may melt and many stumble. At all their gates I have given the glittering sword. Ah, it is like lightning. It is taken up for slaughter. Cut sharply to the right. Set yourself to the left, wherever your face is directed. I, the Lord, will also clap my hands, and I will satisfy my fury. I, the Lord, have spoken. Brutal. I mean, it doesn't take a Bible scholar to understand what's going on here. We talked about it in Romans. The government does not bear the sword in vain. What's the sword? The sword of the government is capital punishment. It's the death penalty for crimes. 
the sword is set against Jerusalem. So Ezekiel was to make a point here. It's a pun. It's a pun, guys. He's going to make a point. I know. I'm sorry. I should have left it alone. What's described in these verses is is a, like a sword dance. Uh, if you've ever seen um, tribal pre-war um, group movements and dances, they're pounding and they're hitting and they're right, they're shouting and it's often choreographed. If you've ever seen video of this happening, what you, you you then might see commentary on what it is. It's a it's a war or a hunting party preparation. They're getting themselves psyched up. Well, what are they doing? In many cases, they're acting out and mimicking the motions of strike, of, of, of death blows, of strength, right? Of conquer. And that's what Ezekiel was to do. He was to take a sword and do like this sword dance in front of the exiles. And they would go, what are you doing? <laughs> All right? This after you're sighing, now you're swinging this sword around. And he's to say, the sword of the Lord is set against Jerusalem. It's interesting because in all of this, the reason is offered. Verse 13 speaks of despising the rod. Despising discipline. Israel is left to feel the sting of the sword of Babylon and the Lord's wrath will be satisfied. Now, we leave it there and we let, it, we let the intensity of that and the dread of that sit there for a moment, rightly. There is no reprieve. There's no reprieve from this. And, and I want us to sense that. I want us to feel it for a moment. The weight, the, the grievousness of it. Because this was, if you will, the, the final word to the exiles before they would get news that Jerusalem has fallen. It was just, it's coming. It's coming. Death and destruction. Death and destruction. Don't listen to those quacks who say, we're going to win. Don't listen to the people who are excited who say, the Egyptians will save us. And he just had to leave it there. And they just had to live with that for a year, two, or three while the siege was going on miles and miles away in their homeland. I think it's important for us to linger on that that, that, the sobriety of that for a moment because of what God says in verse 13. You have despised the rod. Israel has despised the rod. They have resisted God's discipline. They have resisted his overtures to wake up from their stupor. They've resisted, if you will, the the conversation, the appeal to the intellect, and have left the Lord as a father with no other option but to drop the hammer. And for those of you who have raised children, you know what this is like. 
you say, come on, you, come on, son, right? We talked about this. You continue this behavior, and this is going to go poorly for you. Now, I'm going to appeal to your intellect first. I'm going to let you know what's going to happen so that when the consequences come down, you can't say, I'm unjust. And then when the behavior continues, the hammer drops, right? And you say, son, I love you too much to not do this. Not because I was itching for it, not because I have an itchy trigger finger, as they might say, not because I love to, to, to pour out the, the wrath of consequence onto my children. You leave me no choice. And you know that I'm not unjust in this. We need to linger on this for a moment because what Israel did um, was what we so often do. We ignore the proddings. We ignore the, the little quiet words of conviction from the Holy Spirit. And we continue to indulge our sinfulness until it bites us. But then later on, in retrospect, once we have repented and humbled ourselves, we, we then remember, you know, a year before, two years before, oh yeah, when I was here, the Lord was trying to get my attention, you know? And then when I was here, you know, my mentor, he was, he was speaking wise words. And then I heard a song on the radio, and then I went to church, and the pastor said this, and then, and then, and then my life blew up. Right? Then the hammer dropped. But in retrospect, it was only after God was patient and kind in his prodding and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Moving on to chapter 22. The word of the Lord came to me saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Now this is fascinating because it describes Israel, excuse me, describes Jerusalem as a city of blood. And of course, blood is either, it's either glorious in that it is being shed for the covering of sin, or blood is heinous because it's being shed in murder. Really, there's, the only other implication behind blood in the Bible is related to, you know, the elements related to birth. Uh, and and those things related to the reproductive cycle. Otherwise, you're really talking about bloodshed for the covering of sin or bloodshed and murder. And of course, in this case, it's the latter. You, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then declare to her all her abominations. You shall say, verse three, thus says the Lord God, a city that sheds blood in her midst so that her time may come and that makes idols to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood that you have shed and defiled by the idols that you have made and you have brought your days near. The appointed time of your years has come. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all the countries. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you. Your name is defiled. You are full of tumult. And Israel would go on to become 
the object of mockery by their neighbors. If you're familiar with the story of Nehemiah, which many of you should be, you know that the, during the course of, we just studied this in Sunday school, during the course of the rebuilding of the walls, you, enemies of God's people came and mocked them. Remember what they said? They said things like, oh, but you, you build a little wall there? If a fox runs on top of that wall, it will crumble. Look at you trying to build the walls. Right? They did become the mockery of the nations around them. They had begun the nation. They were birthed with such power and mighty victories, dramatic displays of, of conquering foes that they ought not conquer. The McShane reading plan has us marching through Exodus right now. And it's a wonderful part of the Bible to just read. It reads like a grand epic. It comes fluidly, chapter after chapter. Miracles and displays of God's love and power and his promises. Eventually driving out the nations as God's hammer of justice from the land of Canaan. But now, just 1,500 or so years later, 1,000 years later, They've become as wicked, and in some cases, the, the biblical reference is that they've become more immoral than those pagan societies around them. And those who should have praised God, listen, those who should have praised God because of Israel's morality mock God's people because of their immorality. Those who should praise God because of God's people's morality mock God's people because of their immorality. And the same can be said of the church. Every time another monetary or sexual scandal breaks out in the news, local pastor, local denomination, local this, local that, and every time it gives occasion to mock God and his people. And you know what? In those instances, like Israel, it's the sin of the people that's worthy. We've made a mockery of God. And now they mock us for our belief in God. It's a natural evolution those who should see God's goodness in his people are given reason to mock and their disbelief is reinforced. Heaven forbid that we become agents of reinforcing disbelief in the minds and the hearts of unbelievers. Verse six. Behold, the princes of Israel in you, again, that's the kings, everyone according to his power have been bent on shedding blood. So just wicked, bloodthirsty kings. Father and mother are treated with contempt, and it goes on. The sojourner suffers exhorta- exor- ex- excuse me, not exhortation, extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. There are men in you who slander to shed blood and people in you who eat on the mountains. That's the holy places of idol worship, the mountains. They commit lewdness in your midst. It goes on. I mean, we won't read the next bit, but it goes on in that same, okay? 
And if you, if you reverse engineer this, what you find is the practical nature of being one of God's people. These are all the things that Israel um, lost. Or they did the antithesis of the command. And if you go through the list, you find that, that being one of God's people practically means that you abhor the shedding of blood. What is that? That's to value life. To be among God's people, you honor your parents, not dishonor. You treat the stranger honestly. You care for widows and orphans. And you refrain from gossip and slander. That's what murdering with words is all about. They murder with their words. It's, it's the murder of someone's character by slander. Look at the end, at verse, uh, end of verse 12 with me. This is the key phrase. Well, we just begin in verse 12. This is just the continuation of that, that list of sins. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take interest and profit and make gain off your neighbors by extortion. But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord. And that, that brings us to the first of three bewares that we're obviously not going to get to tonight. The first of three bewares in this section. Beware, number one, of the sin of forgetfulness. Beware of the sin of forgetfulness. Uh, I mentioned this just in passing uh, Sunday, and I was speaking with um, our friend Daniel Banta about this last week. The entire sacrificial system that God arranged for Israel, uh, it was set up around times and seasons, harvests and special days. All of these things memorialized the actions and provision of God for Israel. So on this day, do this. Why? Because on this day, 317 years ago, I rescued you out of Egypt, right? On this day, do this. Why? Because I gave you the land. And so when you pull the harvest, bring me some. On this day, set up these stick shelters and sleep under them for a week. Why? So that you fall asleep looking at the stars and you tell the next generation about the consequences of sin, the book of Numbers, that the people of Israel lived through 40 years because they did not believe. The whole system is set up so that Israel will do one thing. Remember. That's it. Just remember my salvation. Remember the consequences of sin. Remember that I gave you this land. Remember, remember, remember. And what they do? But you forgot me. Beware Beware of the sin of forgetfulness. It's the same reason Jesus told us to observe the Lord's Supper. Remember me. I read this week about a young man baptized eagerly when he was six years old in a Lutheran church in 1824. He was confirmed at age 16, and by age 17, he was such a devout reader of scripture and journaler of scripture that these words have been preserved many years later. He says, our heart 
reason, history, and the work of Christ convinces us that without him, we cannot achieve our goals. These things convince us that without him, we are doomed by God, and only Christ can save us. In another passage, he, goes, he says, the union of believers with Christ, according to John 15, is absolutely necessary. The fruit of our union with Christ is our willingness to sacrifice ourselves for him. 17 years old. And the joy of the Epicureans, that's the ancient Greek party-goers, okay? The joy of the Epicureans and their superficial philosophy sought in vain is known only that so that the joy and their, their high-minded thinking, right, is known only when the innocent heart is united with Christ and through Christ to God. That's some deep stuff for a 17-year-old. I wasn't writing like that. You want to know who that was? One Karl Marx of Marxism. He began here. And somewhere in his studies and the advancement of his mind in the years that would come led him to found what is known as Marxism or communism, what is an atheistic state and worldview that seeks to achieve utopia apart from the acknowledgement of sin or the need for regeneration or the need for God at all, nay, his existence. How can one begin there and end here? Somewhere along the line, he forgot Right? At one time he had a knowledge of God's word, but he forgot. In Judges 3, 7, it reads, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. Beware of the sin of forgetfulness. Let's see if we can get through the second point. The second point we will observe tonight is beware of the allure of sin. Beware the allure of sin. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 22. Behold, I strike my hand at the dishonest gain that you have made and at the blood that has been in your midst. Can your courage endure? Or can your hands be strong in the days that I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. I will scatter you among the nations and disperse you through the countries, and I will consume your uncleanness out of you. The allure of sin is great. And in Israel's case, God had a solution. He would remove them from the promised land, put them in this foreign pagan place to be oppressed, to be threatened, to have no seeming hope of return, in order that verse 15, he might consume the uncleanness out of them. That's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? 
Here again, friends, we are reminded of this refrain. We've been hopefully being reminded of this a few weeks in a row. God will do what he must in order to deal with sin so that he can redeem. You've forgotten me. You've become corrupt, immoral, idolatrous. They couldn't keep their hands off idols, so God sent them to the capital city of idolatry, Babylonia. And in 70 years, they would become sick of idols. And God says, I will do what I must to consume the uncleanness out of you. You want idolatry? You want to worship foreign gods? You want a a few verses earlier? Remember they were eating on the high places, eating on the mountains? That was, you know, animal sacrifice being offered to a pagan god and then consumed. It was what God ordained for his people, only instead of being offered to Yahweh, it was being offered to Baal. You guys want some idols? All right, I'll give you some idols. Let's see how much you like it. Here, bow down before this giant statue or get thrown into a fire. How much do you like idols now? There's an interesting story. Dr. George Sweeting, he was the sixth president and chancellor of uh, the Moody Bible College or Moody Bible Institute. This was back in um, the 70s and the 80s when during his tenure. He's a prolific writer, pastor. He's a great man. Um, if you find anything by uh, Dr. George Sweeting, I encourage you, pick it up, read it. Um, he writes about a, a time when he was 10 years old and his father caught him smoking. Now again, you're talking about 1981, okay? So... His father, George Sr., he didn't get angry at his son's secrecy and his his deviation from their rules. He said, look, I understand. I like a good cigar. Tell you what, son, let's hop in the rowboat. Let's take a little paddle out into the sea, and let's have a smoke. Come on. I mean, can you imagine me and, like, Jake? (laughs) And so they get out. It's a bit of a stormy day, but they get out past the breakers, and he fires up for him a nice big Cuban. And after a few minutes of puffing on that cigar and (laughs) choppy waves, I mean, he's, of course, puking up all over the place, right? All over the boat, all over the thing. And this is what George wrote down. I never smoked again. (laughs) It's <laughs> a smart dad. Oh, you want to smoke? I'll tell you what. Let's, let's go smoke. Let's see how much you like it. I never smoked again. I mean, it's very, very similar to what God did with Israel. Oh, you like, oh, you want some idolatry? You're enjoying, you're enjoying the land I supernaturally gifted you with olive groves you didn't plant and cultivate, with fields ready for harvest, with cities ready to occupy, homes ready to live in, you're enjoying all those blessings and you're spitting in my face like an adulterous bride. And so I will do what is required to get the uncleanness out of you. And yet, like a father who would give his son a big fat Cuban on a choppy rowboat, 
It's not to get them hooked. It's to get them out. Uh, We would be wise, friends, to beware of the allure of sin. Beware the allure of sin, especially young people. There's so much that you don't know. There's so much life you haven't lived. And growing up in an environment like the one where you're growing up in, where your, your parents will have you know, very tight reins on your surroundings, it can be easy to become fixated or fascinated with that from which you are withheld. Okay? That's a fancy way of saying the stuff your parents won't let you see or do. Okay? And the, the Bible tells us a couple of things about sin. I mean, it tells us that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Eve said her observation of it was that it was good for food. It looked good. It didn't look all grotesque and weird and gross and dripping like ooze and smoking like some kind of weird cartoon that's like obviously toxic. No, it looked like it was good for food. The Bible also tells us that, that sin is pleasurable for a while. I can even remember a time in my own life, disillusioned and frustrated, early 20s, things were not working out for me as I thought they were, they would, as I thought they should. I had devoted my life and here it was and yet it's not panning out. And I said, you know what? Obviously, I missed something somewhere. I'm just gonna call up an old girlfriend or meet up with some old buddies and I'm just gonna enjoy what I've been depriving myself of for all these years. And you know, it didn't take long for me to realize that it, it was making me sick. It wasn't making me happy. There was no joy. There was no fulfillment. It was only regret. And then later I saw what was the Lord doing. He said, okay, have a taste, son. You ready to, you ready to move on? You ready to keep going? Yeah. It's pleasurable for a season, but in the end, it stings. Stings like the bite from a viper. Well, we'll pause there for tonight, and we'll pick it up in, I think we've got a few more, yeah, a few more verses to cover in chapter 22, and then we'll move on to the next section, but yeah, I think that's worth, worth considering and meditating on for the week. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word and how in it we find uh, so, so much, so many uh, life lessons, but also so many allusions to the biggest picture and the biggest story ever told. Here God gifts man these amazing blessings, the air in our lungs, the the feel of the grass beneath our feet, the warmth of the sun on our skin, the joy of a child's laugh, the satisfaction of your spouse's embrace, the camaraderie of the church, the smell of roasted ham, Here you have given to man these amazing gifts to enjoy. 
And so often we just forget. And so, Lord, in our forgetfulness, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You did what was necessary to deal with our sin so that you could call us back. Are you done indulging? Are you done tasting that bitter fruit? And come on back. Come on home. Let's walk. Let's talk. Let's get right. Let's grow. Let's become like Christ. Let's be used by him. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. It's riddled all over the pages of Scripture, even in obscure passages like Ezekiel chapter 22. Uh, Lord, help us not to forget. Help us not to be disillusioned by the allure of sin. And go with us as we leave this place, armed with uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, ringing in our minds and on our lips. We have a gracious and loving Father who has dealt with sin so that he can redeem. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, good night, folks.